People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Rob Shear is the founder of Comfort Cases, a charity whose mission is to inspire communities to bring dignity and hope to the nearly 450,000 youth in foster care in the United States. He lives with his husband, Reese, in Maryland, and they are the fathers of five wonderful children. And Rob is an absolute delight. Welcome to HealthGig, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so excited to talk to both you ladies. We're so excited about your book, A Forever Family, which Trisha and I have read, and about your organization called Comfort Cases. But your story is amazing. It's heartbreaking but you flipped it to do so much good in the world, which is so inspiring. But the first thing I wanted to say, and the first impression I got from this book is about Reese. He's amazing. (laughs) Oh my gosh, isn't he? He is. I mean, you'd end every little section with, but Reese helped me through that. Reese had the wisest thing to say, or Reese, Reese, Reese. And I thought, wow, you really lucked out. I did. I did. You know, so many times people have come to me and they've said after reading our book is that it's almost like a love story. And I never really thought about that as we were writing my memoir and stuff. But, you know, I have to tell you, Reese and I have been together for 18 years. I would not be the man I am today, the father that I am today. And I don't even know if I would even still be on the face of this earth if it wasn't for Reese. And he is my biggest fan, my hardest critic, and he just supports me in every way he possibly can and is the most amazing father to watch him with our five children. I mean, understanding him, if you read the book, I came home and said to Reese, you know, being a dad, my first date, I asked him, do you want to be a parent? And then all of a sudden, you know, we have two kids. And then three months later, I tell him about two more kids. And he's like, well, we already have two kids. I said, oh, too late. I've already, you know. (laughs) And then in 2019, I bring home an 18-year-old son. (laughs) And my husband is just, uh, like I said, I am who I am today because of Rishir. And as you know, his last name was actually Sheer, and I actually took his last name when we got married. Mm. Well, that definitely comes across in the book. It does. But you know what? There's so much to talk about, and what you just said was so much. But if we can back up so our listeners know exactly who we're talking to and how you got to be where you are today, could you give us some background about you? Sure. You know, I grew up not like most kids in the Northern Virginia area. I was the youngest of 10 kids and my mother had been married, you know, six times. I lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia and D.C. And, you know, I never remember a picture on the wall. I don't remember a Christmas tree. I don't remember a birthday cake. Rob, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you were in and out of homes as a family. Yeah, as a family, we lived in and out of shelters. We would move out in the middle of the night of an apartment 
and because, you know, my parents didn't pay the rent. And I don't ever remember my father ever having any stable employment. There was never enough food in the refrigerator. I'm 55 years old and I still deal with food insecurities because of what I went through as a child. And it was rough. The abuse was more than you could possibly imagine. And that to me was something that was so hard and it's taken many, many years of therapy. But the sad part is though, I look back at my life now, I'm 55 years old and I look back and the thing that I get saddened the most about is not the fact that my parents beat me or put cigarettes out on me or held guns to my head. I get sad because I lost my sisters and my brothers because they were never able to find that grit with inside themselves as I had found. And they were the system, you know, teenage pregnancy, drug addiction, incarceration, alcoholism, all of the things that we hear about with kids who have come from a traumatic childhood and then going to foster care. And so I actually only have a couple of siblings left. And even with them, you know, they still have this blame the system mentality where I made a decision a long time ago. First of all, I made the decision to forget because the thing that your listeners need to understand is that forgiveness is not for the other person. Forgiveness is to bring the strength back within yourself. And so I forgave. And then the next thing I decided to do was to stop blaming the system and do everything I could in my power to help change the system. And I think that's a key thing. When did you go to a foster care? So I actually, at the age of 12, went into the system carrying a trash bag up the driveway. Never forget it. Never forget it. But I thought that I was being saved. I thought that I was going to my forever family. The abuse was so bad with my biological parents that, you know, knowing that I was going to a home that, you know, there was going to be food in the refrigerator and two parents that were going to love me. And you know what? I actually got that, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I was shocked. I was like, oh, my gosh, I am actually going to make it. You know, I called them mom and dad by that point. Was that Sue? Yes, that was Sue. And so I called her mom and dad and, you know, and as abusive as, as my foster father was, and he was very mentally abusive and even physically abusive, I just wanted to be loved. And it was the fall of 1984. And I came home from school and there it was the thing that I had not seen for so many years. And it was my trash bag filled with all my belongings. And when they informed me that I couldn't live there any longer because they weren't going to receive a check, my whole life just shattered at that moment. And I literally became homeless living on the streets of Northern Virginia. Wow. And how old were you at this point? I was 18 years old. I was a senior in high school. It was the fall of 1984. And after about a day or two living on the streets under the bridge, I decided that I was going to continue to go to high school. And so I would hide my trash bag and I would walk into school and, you know, I would hope that, you know, kids wouldn't push me in the locker. Or nobody needed to remind me about the holes that were in my shoes because I felt that water every day it rained. And I knew that I was scrawny and I was long haired and I had an odor about me. But the problem was, ladies, no one would ever look at me. 
No one would ever acknowledge me. And the fact is, is that I realized that if you looked at me, if you truly acknowledged me, then you would have to accept that you failed me. You failed me. And so every day I would go into school, I would sit in Mrs. Brown's English class, and I would wait for the guidance counselor to pull me out, but they never did. And then when I wasn't at school and digging through the trash in the lunchroom to see if I could get enough food for that night, I was sitting in the public library reading as many books as I could get my hands on because I just wanted to educate my mind. And then it happened the spring of 1985, graduation day. And I remember lining up with my caps and gown. I remember all the screaming in the auditorium as they called name after name and people were clapping and clapping. And then all of a sudden they called my name. Mm. Exactly. Nothing. Wow. I mean, you did all of this. Do you know how you did it? I mean, at such a young age, like you said that you had grit and your brothers and sisters didn't share that with you? Yeah. You know, I have to tell you, and and I get this question asked all the time, no matter where I'm being interviewed is, where did I get my grit? I remember, you know, I had a job making $3.35 an hour. And by the way, listeners, that was minimum wage back then. So, um, but I had a job at the local taco place and they had found out that I was the token homeless kid. And so the owner would leave the outside bathroom door unlocked so I could sleep there at night. It was that act of kindness. It was Mrs. Bowley in my music class who always had extra food that day and would always give me that look that I needed, the act of kindness. And I truly do look back and realize that there were so many acts of kindness. But one of the things, and again, I'm not saying this for your listeners, this is not for everybody, but I have a faith. And I have a faith that my Heavenly Father, truly, truly had a reason for me to be there. And maybe I couldn't figure it out at that moment, but he wasn't giving up on me, no matter how hard it was at times. And I just kept believing that. I just kept believing. And and that's something that people seem to not understand that, you know, faith is not something that you see. It's something that you feel with inside yourself. And I just felt that even as a young boy. That's amazing. So what were your next steps and when did the Navy come in? So after graduation, and there's so much in the book that, you know, you can only put so much in a book, but after graduation, I definitely decided that I had to do something. Because see, you have to understand kids who are in foster care, and we have 438,000 children in our foster care system. We know for a fact that 30,000 of those kids will age out this year and 70% of them will become homeless just like I was. And so we also know the statistics show us that 72% of our death row inmates were actually in foster care. And for me, I had three choices. Choice number one, give up. Suicide is something that I had thought about. I'd already lost um, two siblings at that point because of suicide. Number two, give in. Petty crime, do something, incarceration, drug addiction. It was all there for me to take advantage of. Or number three, give it all I got. And that's what I chose to do. I joined the United States Navy and decided that that was going to be my path. 
But see, most people don't know unless they've read the book, because I don't talk about this often, is about that the Navy saved me in so many ways, but the Navy also broke me. Because all of a sudden, as I'm in the Navy and I'm thriving and I'm doing well and my life is finally, I've got a roof over my head, all of a sudden my bladder ruptures and I have emergency surgery and the Navy gave me a one-way plane ticket back to Dulles Airport. I literally became that homeless kid again. Did that have to do with your upbringing? Yeah. So as a young boy, my biological father, as I said, was very abusive. And if he wasn't screaming for us to bring him his Pabst Blue Ribbon out of the refrigerator and we'd feel the cherry of the cigarette out on our leg, he was punching us in our stomach, in our bladder area, because it was his way of control. You went to the bathroom, you didn't ask, you got a punch. You went to the bathroom and you didn't flush the toilet, you got a punch. And it was years and years of the punching that psychologically affected me to where I was always scared to go to the bathroom. And even though he wasn't there anymore, that getting over that in my mind of that punch, I would hold my bladder as much as I could. And because of that is the reason that my bladder actually ruptured. Wow. Your dad and your mom, what were their upbringings like? So my parents, and I use that term loosely, neither one of them had an education over to the eighth grade. Nowadays, finding DNA, ancestries, I've been able to find out more and more information, you know, and good example is just within the last three years, I found out that I actually have another brother and sister and have spoken to them and my biological mother actually sold both of those kids, one when the, he was six months and the other one when she was two. They came from the Carolina area, very uneducated, lots of drug addiction, lots of alcoholism. And so that was a big thing for them. But for me, when the Navy gave me my discharge papers, I was literally only weeks away from receiving medical discharge for the rest of my life, but I didn't make it in time. And so they gave me one month pay. They gave me a one-way plane ticket. I hitchhiked down Route 7, if anybody knows the North Virginia area. I hitchhiked down Route 7 to a little town called Gore, Virginia, right outside of Winchester, Virginia. And I found a hotel that rented by the week. And I had enough money for about a month and a half there, maybe. And so I got a job at the local Dart. And back in those days, it was like Target. And when I was about a week away from knowing that I was getting ready to be homeless again, I went back to my favorite place, my safe place, the public library. And I ended up typing up a resume. And I typed a resume so well that you'd hire me. And I went door to door. I took my last $10 Salvation Army and bought a suit. And I went door to door to office after office because in the Navy, I was really known as being a really good typist. And I was the company yeoman. So, you know, doing the filing and the typing, and I was really good at shorthand and all that stuff. And so I went to offices and I just happened to walk into a bank and I interviewed for a position another act of kindness. And I was hired on the spot. I actually thought I was going to go to jail. I actually thought that they were going to find out that the resume was fake and they were going to call the police and the police were going to arrest me. But instead they gave me a job. And that was the chance in my life that truly changed and turned 
everything around. Rob, what was fake on the resume? Or you were thinking they would think it was. Oh my gosh, everything was fake on the resume. So I would, <laughs> I, I literally faked oh. the entire resume. So what I would do, I took, the, I took <laughs> a phone book. And by the way, listeners, for those of you who are young, there used to be this thing called a phone book that got sent to us, okay? <laughs> and there used to be the yellow pages and the white pages. And so what I did was I sat at the library. I had the librarian allow me to use the phone. And I would dial company numbers. And when I would hear the operator go, beep, 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 this number has been disconnected. I would write the name of that company down. Yeah, so I acted. So, but he didn't. Because you wanted to have no trace whether you were there or not. Exactly. They were like out of business, so they couldn't check on you. Wow, that was brilliant. (laughs) See, the thing is, is the only thing I had on my resume is that I worked at a taco place and I was in the Navy for six months. That was it. And so I was like, who the hell is going to hire me with those things? So I had to build this resume. And then I went to the white pages and I would call people in the white pages because I needed references. (laughs) <laughs> and you know and i'd wait for that operator to go beep 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 this number's been disconnected and i would oh. write that name and that phone number down <laughs> and so when i went in for the interviews i mean my palms would be sweating and i'd be like i'm going to jail i'm going to jail this is fraud I'm going to jail and sure enough he hired me but let me tell you the craziest thing though i've been working for the company for about three years now at that point so I've been started climbing that corporate ladder. He would tell me to come to work at eight. I'd get there at six. He'd tell me to leave at five. I'd stay till seven. You know, I would walk around with this tablet and I'd write everything down that every employee said because I, I just wanted to achieve. And at that point, I'd already gotten my own apartment. I'd got my own car. But I had this guilt that I couldn't shake that kept tapping me on my shoulders every day. And so I finally walked into his office and handed him my letter of resignation. And he said, what is this? And I said, I have to resign. And he said, what are you talking about? He's like, you left your job. He's like, you have climbed this corporate ladder faster than any employee I've ever hired. And I said, Lewis, I said, I have to resign. I said, the resume that I handed you on the day you interviewed me? He was like, yeah. And I said, it was all a lie. He was like, what? And I said, everything was a lie. And I sat down and I told him my story, the story about the 12 year old boy carrying a trash bag, the story of the kid who was eating out of the trash can, the story of the kid who did not want to be defined by something I carried, but to be defined by the fact of the hard work that I could give. And he actually looked at me and he ripped up my letter of resignation and said to me, you know what, Rob, you're the most honest person I've ever met. He says, do me a big favor, get back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a beautiful story. Act of kindness. Act of kindness, yeah. So you worked there, and then what happened? I climbed the corporate ladder like you wouldn't believe. See, I had finally figured out exactly what my community was trying to teach me. My community was trying to teach me three important things in my life. Number one, me, me, me. Buy a big house. Oh, I bought a big house in D.C. And you would walk by it. You would look (laughs) at it and you would say, wow, whoever lives in that house, they are successful. 
And then bought an expensive car. I bought two because I wanted you to look at me at the stoplight <laughs> and say, wow, that guy is successful. And then I filled my bank account so fat I could take all of them to Disney World. Because to me, it was about what you all thought of me. And I didn't want anybody to think about the fact that I used to be a kid in foster care. And then I met him. I met Reese. Oh, yeah. This is the good part. <laughs> I will never forget it. I'd been in and out of some really bad relationships because, you know, for me, I had watched my entire life of my mother being abused, my siblings being abused, my brothers and sisters in and out of you know, abusive relationships. And I just always used to think, well, that's the way relationships were supposed to be. So I would always gravitate to these relationships that were physically and mentally abusive. And after breaking up for two years, being single, moving out of the state and coming back, I met him. I met Brees. And I remember looking at my friend and saying, that's the man I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And my friend actually said, you know what? You need another beer. And I actually <laughs> walked over to Reese, introduced myself. And that was literally 18 years ago. And Reese was so different than me. Reese had moved here from Kansas. He was well-educated. He was in the process of getting his master's. His parents had been married for 50-some years. He had one sibling. He had the life that, you know, most people would love to have. And here's this bruised and battered boy, you know, who really didn't know what it was like to be loved, who didn't know what it was like to love themselves. And, and then there was Reese. And Reese, you know, he was just, like I said, he came in a time in my life that I needed, and he's never left. And he, I remember, you know, when I turned 40, he gave me my very first birthday party. I'll never forget it. And he said to me, he says, I can't imagine, you know, going through life without a birthday party and having a birthday cake. And so birthdays are real big in our house. My husband doesn't put up one Christmas tree. He puts up four because he wants me to know wow. and know about how special holidays are. And we make traditions and you know, the fact that my husband and I were the 20th couple to be married in the District of Columbia when they legalized same-sex marriage, yeah. it was, my, it was my husband who was changing our baby Tristan's diaper when Adrian Fentney decided to have same-sex marriage legal in the District of Columbia. And so I ran upstairs and I was like, oh my gosh, Adrian's getting ready to sign the bill where we can be married. I said, do you want to get married? He says, no, I'm changing the dirty diaper. <laughs> <laughs> so Rob, you know, being a gay man too, back because you're 55, you said, was that even an issue for you? Oh, huge issue. You know, first of all, realizing being a gay man in a banking industry, which is where all the good old boys worked, okay? And so there was never talk about, you know, who my relationship was with. And many times I lied about it. Another act of kindness, when I took my job at First Choice Bank many years ago, I had actually had been with Reese. So I just started, so I just left another bank. I'd started with this bank and bought into it and and Reese was, um, I decided at that moment that this was the person and I was not going to be ashamed. 
And so I just, you know, gradually, you know, talked about my partner. And at that time, you know, we weren't legally married, but yeah, it was very hard. And by the way, try, you know, my kids. So, you know, fast forward, right? Five kids, four of my kids arrived 13 years ago and they were six months, two, two, and four. And my husband and I, two white men getting ready to adopt four black kids in the district of Columbia was not heard of. And we, I'm going to tell you something, the, the backlash that we experienced because of that, the amount of money we had to invest in attorneys and therapists to make sure people understood that, you know, we weren't going to turn our boys gay, that, you know, we weren't taking away their, the fact that they were black. I mean, it was rough. When I see people today and I'm thinking to myself, if you only knew what we went through, but you know what? I say this quite often. I do it all over again because you know what? I had Reese standing next to me and we have the most beautiful family. Can you talk a little bit about the foster care system? Because one of the things in the book that I thought was so shocking but I don't know why, because I don't know much about it, is the parents that come in and strictly because they want to be paid. We have to understand that, first of all, children who enter foster care enter because of a choice that someone else made. Okay, that's what we have to realize. We also must realize is that there's no such thing as a bad child. It's only a child that needs to be redirected. And so all of a sudden we have children coming into a system That is, by the way, a system that makes money on the backs of children, okay? So they're coming in and foster parents are given an incentive to take these children in. And I'm going to get the hate. I get it all the time on my podcast. People write me almost daily. Not every foster parent is bad, okay? Not every foster parent is in for the money. Okay, but the problem is we as a society must pull the blanket back and truly expose those who are because the majority of them are. And this is a good example. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, one of the richest counties in the state of Maryland, one of the top 10 in the country. I go to an amazing church, Fairhaven United Methodist Church, and I say to my minister quite often, Have we ever had a call from a social worker asking to come and talk about children in foster care? And they say, no. And I say, you know why, don't you? And they said, why? Because we live on the certain side of a track. See, the fact is, is that we have used this enticing money to get people to take children. That's why, you know, we see that children who are going to foster parents are in lower housing income because it's a way for a social worker to say, look what the money you can make. Instead of saying, what about the love you can give a child? You know, there is no accountability, ladies, for the stipend that foster parents receive no accountability. So in the state of Maryland, where it's one of the highest paid, no one's coming saying, are you truly spending that money on Johnny? You know, when my son, Alex, he arrived at our home at the age of 18, we were the very first family in 2019 in our state to petition a court and say, listen, we don't want your stipend. We don't want your money, you know? And so 
Alex did a thing which they call SELA, which can be done all over the country, where actually Alex got the stipend. So the stipend went into an interest-bearing savings account from the time Alex was 18 until he was 21, where each month he received that check. You know, he's been smart and he's invested it and he knows he has two dads who take care of him and he doesn't have to spend that money. But the thing that we must do is we must, we must, we must make sure that every single child in foster care is set up for financial success. How much money do they receive on average? It varies. So Maryland is one of the highest paid states, along with the District of Columbia and Arizona, and they average about $984 a month per child. And that's with no questions asked. So not only do you get that money, if you have a child under the age of five, you get WIC, you get free medical, you get free daycare, you get free after-school care, you get a monthly clothing allowance for this child. That money, you know, and they say, well, it's, it's to room and board. What you t- Let me tell you, when we became foster parents, first of all, we were shocked that there was money being given. My kids now have beautiful college funds. <laughs> Thank you very much for helping us do that. But we were shocked. But what we were more shocked about is how people reacted to us when they started to try to give us stuff. So here's a good example. Thanksgiving. We had to put our children in a certain daycare until after before we adopted them that was approved by the foster care agency. Well, every Thanksgiving, they would want to give us these big dinners. And my husband and I would say, we can afford to buy our own turkey. We can afford to buy. And they would get upset with us and because it's all given to you. And so we would literally take the turkey dinner and we would go to a shelter and give it to someone. But it's, it's things like that. I mean, they average across the country, you can average about $38,000 a year per child housing them. And you can also qualify for Section 8 housing. It's a shattered system, my friends. The system is doing exactly what it was built to do. It is a shattered system. And understand, the system, we get it. We understand completely that the system is needed. But the system needs an overall. Because when you look at 64% of children come into foster care because of the word neglect, the word neglect is defined in every state differently. I am here to tell you the word neglect is poverty, is poverty. And so what we need to do is we need to do everything in our powers to keep the families together, to do everything we can to lift that single mother up. So she doesn't lose her children to help that family stay together as a combined one. Now, I will have to tell you, I have two children that arrived in my home with severe abuse. Okay, there was no reason for this woman to ever be a mother. But also understand, 64 percent of kids come in the system because they can't put food on the table. They can't pay for daycare. They can't pay for clothing. They don't have housing. They have drug addiction. They have mental health issues. These are all things that can be solved, but not tear the family apart. Wow, it's a big problem. So your work then is to educate people about what's happening with the system and to, again, using the idea of education as a way of awareness. Is that right? Hopefully, I think, as you said, just turn people into activists and to take action. Is that sort of what you're about? 
You know, that's exactly what I do now. So the thing is, is that I had realized those three things that my community had taught me, the me, 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 the house, the money, the car, that's not it. That's not what they were trying to teach me. When my children arrived, I realized it. I realized what was wrong. My community, and by the way, your community is not your zip code. Your community is our human race. My community was not educated about kids like me. They weren't educated. You say that word foster, you immediately think, what did that kid do? We do. So what I go around the country and teach is, number one, change your vocabulary. These are not foster children. These are children in foster care. These are children experiencing foster care. Let me tell you the reason why. When I say the word foster, I think exactly what I just told you. What did they do? When I say children, gosh, my heart warms. My heart smiles. And it changes how my next step will go. Number two, I want people to understand that children in foster care do not belong to you. They do not belong to me. They belong to us, to us. And if you take a child in the system and you educate them and you educate their mind, guess what? You actually benefit your future, your future, because they are our leaders tomorrow. And then I always want to make sure, and my husband, along with thousands and thousands of volunteers throughout our country, we have to determine to eliminate trash bags for children who are in foster care. And so with our organization, Comfort Cases, we have delivered over 185,000 cases. They have brand new pajamas in them, toothbrush, lotion, shampoo, conditioner. Every child gets an activity. Every child gets their own bar of soap. Each child gets a book because, again, as I said, you educate a child's mind, you educate your future. And then we give every kid a stuffy because I don't care whether you're a newborn or you're 55 like me. We all love a good stuffed animal. And then finally, my son, Grayson. My son Grayson was actually five years old when we packed our very first case. He's now 15. He said, Daddy, we got to put a blankie in every case. And I said, a blankie? I said, you know, these kids are not cold, Grayson. He said, I know, Daddy. But if they wrap themselves up in their blankie, they know we love them. Ladies, isn't that what we all want? We want to be loved. We want to know we matter, that we're not disposable. We're not invisible. And I'll never forget it. I was in the Midwest handing out cases and a young boy opened up his case. All of a sudden he started to cry. And I went down and I sat on the floor and I asked him, why was he crying? He said, Mr. Rob, why? I said, why what? He said, why would someone give me all of this new stuff? And I looked at him as I tell every one of your listeners, you do not have to know someone to love them. You don't. You don't have to know them to love them. And we all should be loving these children. Yeah, that's so amazing. I mean, you're, you're right. I think what you're saying is that we are all in this together, right? We are here and all children affect all of yes. us and we should love them. Love of love. 
you know, and it's so important. You know, when you look at the fact that only 54% of kids in foster care actually graduate from high school, only 54%, that only 3% get a college education. Those numbers are not acceptable, my friends. They're not acceptable. One of the things that I've heard you talk about on some interviews and things is the privilege to give back. Clearly what you're spending your life doing. Yeah. You know, I got rid of the big house. I got rid of the expensive cars. I drive a Toyota hybrid and I actually live on a farm and all my money goes back into our organization. And let me tell you, I say it to my children every single day. Your legacy is not what you take from this world. Your legacy is what you give, is what you give. And I remind everyone, you know, I hear this all the time. I can't give because I have no money. Guess what? Each and every one of us have the same exact thing. Same exact thing. White, black, male, female, gay, straight, rich, poor. We all have the exact same thing. And that is our time. Our time. It is the most valuable thing in the world. Go and mentor a child in the foster care system. Go to a group home and help with homework. The next time you go to that overpriced coffee shop, step away and go to a box store and buy a pair of pajamas. When you travel, take the lotion and the shampoo and conditioners because you know we all take them and we put them in a drawer at home and we (laughs) think we're going to use them. Send them the comfort cases. We would love to use them again. You know, each and every one of us, maybe you can't adopt, maybe you can't foster, but I will tell you this much. Each and every one of us can give the most valuable thing, and that's our time. Can you tell us about your kids and what they're doing now? Oh, my five. So we have five kids. So my oldest son is 21 now. He arrived at the age of 18, a senior in high school. And now he just finished his sophomore year in college. And he is um, applying at London University, where he is going to study abroad. He wants to be a psychologist. He is as if he's been in our family the entire time, I always say to him, I have one regret. And that is that I didn't walk him to kindergarten. And he is the most amazing big brother. Um, Alex is truly a gift. And he says to me quite often, you know, pop, she changed my life. And I said, no, you just came home where you were supposed to be. And then my daughter is 18. She just graduated from high school and she's trying to figure out exactly where she wants to be. My son Grayson is 15 years old and he's a sophomore. My sweet boy Makai is also 15. They're three months apart. He's a sophomore and he just, he's now running for class president. He actually was told when we were little that he would never walk or never talk. He has what they call fetal alcohol syndrome. But I'm here to tell you that we are a family that never says never. And my son is now a sophomore in high school, getting ready to get his learners, and he's running for student body. And then there's my son, Tristan, my amazing little baby who's been with us since he's six months, who's now 13. He's an eighth grader, straight A student, deciding whether or not which school he wants to go to because he plays football and he wants a scholarship. But the funny thing is, is that I look at my five kids who, by the way, are all individuals. They all look at life so differently. And then I look at my husband, Reese, 
And I think about the fact that these, these beautiful kids are growing up to be such amazing, good humans. And it's because of role models. And the fact is, is that every child is resilient and every child deserves a foundation. And as I tell people quite often, we probably will not stop at five children. But right now, we are loving those five that we have right now. So how does it work? So at 18, Alex came to you and you adopted him. How did you meet up? The fact is, is that children over the age of 13 are the hardest children to ever place or to adopt. They truly are. Right now, we have 120,000 children waiting to be adopted for a forever family. We have 438,000 in the system, but 120,000, the parental rights have been severed completely. And so it's very, very hard. For me, I was giving a speech. I was giving a talk at a local high school. They had invited me to come and talk. And a young boy walked up to me and he said, Mr. Shear, will you sign my book? And I said, of course, what is your name? And he said, Alex. I said, tell me something about yourself. He says, I have nothing to tell. I said, Alex, we all have a story. He said, no, Mr. Shear, my story's like yours. I've been in foster care most of my life. He was like, I'm 18 years old. I'm getting ready to age out and I'm going to be homeless like you were. And it hit me so hard. And I said, you know, Alex, it doesn't have to go that way. And I literally handed him my business card and I said, I want you to call me. I've got to go give another talk, but I want you to call me. I went home that night and I told my husband and my four children about meeting this young boy. And one of my kids said, dad, you should invite him to our farm for dinner. We actually do live on a farm. We have goats and chickens. We even have a pig named Penelope. And sure enough, Alex came that Saturday. And we fell in love with him. And within three months after him arriving, we asked Alex if he wanted to move home, if he wanted to be our son. And he said, and as he stood there crying, saying, I can't believe this. And so that's how it happened. You started in our discussion that you left your career to go on a book tour. And you mentioned Derek Jeter. Yes, Derek Jeter is actually one of my publishers, Jeter Publishing. Him and Simon Schuster published our book, A Forever Family. I'm so, so humbled that, you know, they had heard me give a talk. And the next thing you know, they published our book. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, especially since Derek only publishes about two books a year with his publishing company. And he actually handpicks each and every book that he publishes. Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So if people want to be involved in comfort cases, how can they find you? What should they do? First of all, they can always go to comfortcases.org. There are so many amazing opportunities for them to help. Our national headquarters is in Rockville, Maryland. And so we actually have waiting list of volunteers. We do volunteering six days a week. We have packing parties all over the country. As a matter of fact, I'm heading out tomorrow morning to Tampa for a big packing party where we pack cases right there in different cities. And we actually leave the cases there for the children within that area. So yeah, visit comfortcases.org and then follow us on all the social media platforms. Well, Rob, thank you. This has been an amazing time to hear about your life and all the good you're doing in the world. And we thank you for that. Well, ladies, listen, thank you so much. I cannot thank you. It's been an absolute honor. You know, thank you for allowing us to continue to talk about the things that are so important. And, and that's our future. And when it comes to our future, it's children. And that's what we must all remember. So thank you so much.
Thanks, Rob. Wow. You guys are amazing what you've done. Incredible. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.